Well, good morning. Well, I was the uh, human resources professional for many years. And one of my greatest challenges was an alleged case of sick building syndrome. A growing number of employees became concerned that the air in our office was contaminated, and many became hypersensitive to any kind of smell in the environment. Some complained of being ill, went to see the doctor, and refused to return to work. But our headquarters was skeptical, and they refused to pay for outside professional assistance. Yet I, was, I thought it was so serious that I decided to order some help myself and absorb the cost. So I found an environmental consulting company and had them bring in a very large machine. The machine would remain in the office for an extended period of time. Its function was to take air samples that could be analyzed. And I asked them to put it right in the middle of the office where everyone could see it. So I needed two things from this whole process. I needed it to do something useful, and I needed it to be visible. Useful and visible. To establish a basis for truth that was evident to everyone. And it worked. People saw that we were doing something to remedy the situation, and the problem was averted. Now, I didn't have complete control of that situation nor was I able to determine the outcome. But when God intervenes, it's different. He has complete control of the proclamation of his kingdom. And he's able to determine the final result. And he doesn't use machines to do his work. He uses people. God displays his glory in the changed lives of his people. He makes them useful and visible as they reflect the truth of his kingdom to a fallen world. So please turn to Matthew 5.13, that's page 810 in the Bibles under your seats. And as you turn there, I want you to recall the importance of God's presence in the book of Exodus and how it made God's people stand out to the rest of the world. Exodus 33.16 Moses said to God, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished from the, by this from all other people on the face of the earth. Now in the book of Matthew, we have something similar happening. God is present among his people in a new and unexpected way. Jesus Christ came as a human, born of a humble Israelite woman, and he delivers a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in which he lays out how his people are to be distinguished from all other people on earth. So our text this morning describes their influence on the world. Matthew five thirteen. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now in this passage, Jesus chose two specific terms to describe his people in this context, salt and light. Now notice he didn't say, try to be like salt and light. To his followers, he says that they already are salt and light. They already are something, something special. They're about to be transformed by the work of Jesus Christ and the work, power of the Holy Spirit. They just need to function according to that truth. In John 16, Jesus said to his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So since we have this testimony concerning the truth, let's look at three points about what it means to be salt and light. First, we're to be useful to a fallen world. And second, we're to be visible to proclaim. And then third, we're to be doing what glorifies God. So let's read Matthew 5.13 again. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's an important observation about salt in this text. In the ancient world, it was something valuable. You've probably heard the term, not worth his salt, meaning someone who's not worth what he's paid. Well, that saying originated in Roman times when salt held greater value than it does today. Why was it valuable? Because without refrigeration, Food needed to be preserved. Rubbed into meat, for example, a little salt would slow the decay. And while we should primarily think of the reference here to salt as a preservative, it does involve the idea of flavor as well. Salt was valuable because it was able to preserve food and also help it taste good in the process if applied in proper measure. So when Jesus told his followers that they were the salt of the earth, they would have thought, thought of salt as not only something valuable, but something also quite useful. And when Jesus presented a contrast, salt that had lost its taste, they understood his meaning. If the qualities that make salt are valuable are lost, it's rendered useless and good for nothing. So how are Christians useful to a fallen world? That's point A, applying God's wisdom. We recognize that God's word is true and authoritative. And because we're guided by the Holy Spirit, we follow Jesus Christ. As we follow Jesus, we can take what God has said and address the problems of life with insight other people don't have. God has revealed his truth to the world, and we are his people. 
so we can help. We can be useful. We know how to apply the wisdom of God. The world around us is incapable of applying God's wisdom in the same way because they don't know God and they aren't his people. How are they described in Romans 1.21? It says, For although they knew God, that is, by what they could observe about God in nature and creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Wisdom is an important theme in the Sermon on the Mount. And like salt has value as a preservative, so does wisdom. Wisdom is a preservative in a world of moral decay. For example, Proverbs 14.3 says, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. So Christians have something to add to a world in decay, in need of restoration. Our presence as God's preserving agents on this earth is useful to others. Christians spend time reading and learning God's word. The Spirit guides us as we think, reflect, and pray. With faithful teaching, we grow in knowledge and understanding. So when people face difficulties, the outlook is brighter with a Christian in the midst, interacting with those involved and seeking to apply God's wisdom to the matter. Now, does that mean the Christians always say brilliant things and are generally the smartest person in the room? Not hardly. Arrogance is not useful. For the Christian, God's wisdom is applied with humility. And Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what, this is what Jesus is driving at, at the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with the realization that we must obey God. So then for God's people... This kind of wisdom is displayed first and foremost by our obedience to God. This is how Jesus defined it himself in Matthew 22. When asked which is the greatest commandment, he replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. In the outline, I've shortened this point to honoring God. When we honor God, it influences those around us. We show them that God must be obeyed, but his people do it willingly, with joy and humility. That was a part two. There was a part two when Jesus replied to that question. He said, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He further said that all the commandments depend on these two. So all the commandments we've been reading in Exodus are important, but Jesus boiled it down to just these two. We're to honor God 
but in doing so, we must also love our neighbor. In the outline, this is point two, self-sacrificing behavior. This is something the Apostle Paul elaborates on in Philippians 2.3. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we behave in this way, it influences those around us. Jesus emphasized that in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is the impact of this kind of God-honoring, self-sacrificing behavior We don't always know exactly, but we know from other places in Scripture that it's far-reaching and influences both believers and unbelievers in different ways. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, God spreads the fragrance of this knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, is that useful for everyone? Yes, it is. Because we're proclaiming good news to everyone, even if they don't receive it. And we don't know the ultimate impact of what our words and our actions are going to be. Well, think about the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Sold into bondage by his brothers, then falsely accused and jailed, he lived a life of suffering as, as God brought him to Egypt for a purpose. But Joseph's faithfulness to God and the wisdom he received from God was recognized and became useful. He had a tremendous influence on everyone. All kinds of people were impacted. In the end, Joseph realized that God had done it primarily to preserve his people Israel. However, in the process, Joseph's godly wisdom was beneficial to Egypt, and he saved the whole world from famine. Now, let's suppose that Christians were to lose their love for God and for one another. Let's just suppose. And let's suppose that Christians neglected the word of God. They wouldn't look any different from the rest of the world, right? They couldn't contribute any of God's wisdom to a world in decay. They'd lose their usefulness and become good for nothing. But don't take this as a warning about eternal security. That would be pushing the metaphor too far. This is about how the world responds to God's people if they no longer function as they should. They'd be viewed 
as worthless, something to be thrown out and trampled. That's why Jesus addressed the importance of avoiding corruption, point B. He asked the question, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's not a question to be answered. Jesus poses it to make us ponder and think. In this context, it refers to salt that has lost its saltiness or potency. But in other contexts, including Roman 1, the more general meaning of the phrase Jesus uses is to make her become foolish. The idea is that if you're a Christian who has lost your saltiness, then you have made a fool of yourself. But how can salt lose its saltiness? It really can't. It's a stable compound. The meaning here is along the lines of salt becoming defiled. In the ancient world, salt could become worthless as a preservative if it mixed with impure substances. For example, gypsum was an impurity that could get mixed in with the salt and cause it to lose its preserving qualities and make it taste bad, too. So if we as Christians are to function as God's preserving agents on the earth, we need to avoid corruption in order to remain useful. That's our charge. It's not an easy one. But we're not left to ourselves. We have a powerful advocate. Jesus prayed very specifically that as he sends his followers into the world, they wouldn't be corrupted by the world. Hear his prayer to the Father, John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, this fallen world needs an effective witness to the truth, point C. That's where Christians are useful. But in many areas of the earth, people are being born, living their lives, and dying without ever encountering a Christian, let alone a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other areas, people interact with Christians every day. So we can begin to see God's wisdom in the instruction of Jesus to his followers to go to all nations and make disciples and teach people to observe the commandments. We need to salt the earth. So what do you think of when I say salt the earth? What do you picture in your, in your mind's eye? If you're like me, you picture a salt shaker. Salt shaker. Why? Because we know salt is most effective and useful when it's distributed. That is, spread out across the surface. That's how salt does its best work. 
Now, I'm originally from Southern California, so I wasn't used to spinning tires on icy driveways. But that all changed when I moved to New England. I learned how useful salt could be in melting ice. But I didn't really need to learn how to put salt on my driveway. I instinctively knew that I needed to spread it over the surface as evenly as possible. The salt needed to mix with the ice while maintaining its saltiness to melt the ice. And the world needs Christians spread across the earth, interacting with the various cultures and strata of society. We're reaching all kinds of people. The followers of Jesus have an important function. We know how to honor God. We know how to live lives of self-sacrifice. We read about these things in our Bibles Every day, we hear it preached. Every week, we just need to be faithful to the end. If we love Jesus and keep his commandments, we will have an effective witness to the truth. And the world needs our testimony for its own benefit. Just consider the prophet Daniel for a moment. He was in exile, living in Babylon, similar to us but he sought the welfare of the country in which he lived. And he helped the leader that he served under, King Nebuchadnezzar. There was no compromising his faith in God. But nevertheless, he faithfully served in the administration of a country that was not his own. Daniel encouraged righteousness, showed respect, endured persecution and displayed humility. He used his influence well and left an impression wherever he was involved. Sometimes people listened to him and received the benefits. Sometimes people ignored him and acted foolishly, resulting in their own demise. But Daniel applied wisdom, avoided corruption, and he was an effective witness to the truth. The world needed him in that place and at that time. And if you're a Christian... The world needs you somewhere, too. Belonging to Christ means we're sent into the world for a purpose. That purpose is not to be like the world. It's to be like Daniel. There may be times when the world hates us. But often it will recognize the usefulness of Christians who exhibit wisdom, morals, and integrity in their words and actions. No one's going to want the Christians to take over, nor should we want that. But we should desire to provide an effective witness to the truth wherever there's an opportunity. So as Christians, we're useful to a fallen world, but there's more to it. Because people need to see us as Christians. That doesn't mean we need to be famous. It doesn't mean we need to be assertive. It doesn't even mean we need a social media profile. But it does mean that we need to be part of the body of Christ. We need to belong to a church because as Christians scattered in a world of unbelievers, we need to come together somewhere and proclaim the reality of God's kingdom on this earth. 
Our identification with the church provides us with the opportunity to love God and love one another before a watching world. So we've come to the second point, visible to proclaim. And what are we proclaiming? God's kingdom. Continuing with our text, Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The significance of light, it's easier for us to immediately grasp than it was for salt. We intuitively understand that light represents something good. We naturally contrast it with darkness as representing something evil. So when Jesus said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The people of his time understood the metaphor he was using. We understand it too. The statement itself might be controversial, but only because its meaning is well understood. Jesus is the only one who can reveal God's truth. He illuminates that truth for us. And if we're being guided into all truth through his spirit and by his words, then we have a role in illuminating God's truth to the world. That's point A. So from the text, let's look at three aspects to the visibility of believers in this world and their testimony to the truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus did not say that his followers should try to become light, like the light of the world. They are the light of the world. First of all, the truth of their testimony is really self-evident. They're citizens of the city of God. This will be fully evident one day, as described in Revelation 21, but the people get a glimpse of this today when they see the church functioning on the earth. Now, the cities of that day were built with limestone. They gleamed in the sun, and they could not be easily hidden, especially if they were set on a hill. That was the picture. Our cities today are also quite obvious. When we drive over the George Washington Bridge on the top level, we see the skyscrapers of Manhattan very clearly. There's no hiding them on a clear day. Follow this picture. The truth that God has redeemed a people for himself is also made clear to a watching world. God's people are living in community at the present time. That community is the church. Second, the truth of this testimony stands out. When Jesus states that people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, he's making a statement about something that's unthinkable. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. You light a lamp to give light to people who need it. That's why you do it, to make the light stand out. So you put it on a stand to make it stand out. No matter what the culture or society is like around the world, the church should stand out. The reason? Christian lives illuminate the truth of Jesus Christ for others. Third, the truth they illuminate benefits everyone. The purpose of lighting a lamp is to give light to all in the house. Light doesn't naturally favor some people over others. 
If there's a light in the room, it doesn't shine for some people and not for others. The closer you are to the light, the better you can see, and it's best to have a light that illuminates the entire room. Similarly, we're not to discriminate when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. Our hope is that everyone will receive the gospel. We're looking for people who will not run away from the light. We're looking for people who want to draw closer to the light. We're looking for people who want to be in the light. These are the ones that show that they love the truth about Jesus Christ, how his perfect life and substitutionary death can deliver us from the power of sin and make us citizens in the kingdom of God and adopted children of the Father. One more observation before we move on. Our light is not hidden or covered, point B. In fact, it's impossible to try, and it's impractical to do. Why? Because when God changes you, it can't be hidden. It can't be covered. It must become visible. That's the work of God in your life. That's new life under the new covenant described in our New Testament books. Christians have to shine as the children of God. Just try to hide a city. It's impossible. That's the point. That's why when believers come to the light, they're commanded to be baptized. They're not to have a secret faith. There must be an outward proclamation of an inward conversion. In this way, their faith becomes visible. And just try to cover a light doesn't make sense. Why have the light in the first place? The point is that the light needs to shine. That's what it's meant to do. Anything else is completely impractical. That's why we're instructed in the New Testament to walk according to the commandments of Christ. The change is to become visible in our everyday lives. That means it should be visible to the people around us, whether they're believers or not. How well do you shine? How's that going for you at at home or at work, in your neighborhood, at the store, at the park, on vacation? As a follower of Jesus, your light does not have an on-off switch. It's on all the time. So if you claim to follow Jesus Christ, then your light must shine. This is the reason that he redeemed us in the first place. This is our purpose. This is why we're willing to lose our life in this world in order to gain a new and better life in Christ. But that means we're now sent into this world to proclaim Christ and glorify God. And with the next verse in our text, Jesus makes the purpose very clear. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Everything hinges on those two words, so that. It's a purpose statement. This is all about God displaying his wisdom and his kingdom by means of his people for the purpose of manifesting his glory to others. So what are we to do? What is our role in this great plan? Point three, the final point in the outline, we must be all about doing what glorifies God. Now there may be something bothering you about what Jesus said in this last verse. That is, the comment about doing good works so that you may be seen by others. I mean, isn't that what a hypocrite does? Doesn't Jesus warn about this in the very next chapter, Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them? Well, it may sound like a conflict, but let's be clear about the difference. Hypocrites try to lower the standards, nitpick the details, and create wiggle room. They cover their tracks, make excuses, and hide behind their religiosity because they love their secret sins and they want to continue in them. And at the same time, they want to maintain the approval of men. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is meant to rattle us and squeeze the hypocrisy out of us. Because Jesus raises the standards higher, higher than the people had been taught. And he doesn't begin his sermon by saying things like, blessed are those who fake righteousness, and blessed are those deceptive in heart. Rather, he says it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who will be satisfied. And it's those who are pure in heart who will see God. So to be a blessed people who shine brightly, point A, we must repent of our sins. Mourn them. Mourn them. Confess them. Turn from them. But then we must follow the call of John the Baptist in Matthew 3.8. We must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How does that happen? Well, simple self-determination and effort just won't cut it. It goes deeper than that. As Psalm 1 says, a blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Christians bear fruit because that's who they are. It's what they become in Christ. They don't just try to bear fruit, they actually do it. And they keep on doing it. They have to shine. They can't hide how they've been blessed by God. Isn't that the picture that we have in Exodus 34 when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? He'd seen a glimpse of God's glory, and he carried God's testimony to the people. His, his face was shining because he'd encountered God. 
There was nothing hypocritical about it. He couldn't help it. In fact, he wasn't even aware of it at first. But his face shined so brightly that he had to cover it with a veil when he was with the people. And what about us? Do we shine like a people that God has chosen to bless? The Apostle Paul wrote something incredible about this. Are you able to believe it? 2 Corinthians 3.8. He said that compared with Moses, our ministry of the Spirit has even more glory. Then he continued, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But maybe you find yourself caught in hypocrisy this morning. You don't know that kind of transformation. So what do you do? Well, start following Jesus Christ for real. That means trusting him alone for your salvation. Leave the transformation to him. You'll receive forgiveness for your sins and new life. Your fear of man is not helping you. You need to fear God. Don't continue to sin and pretend like it doesn't matter. Don't hide sin that should be confessed to someone. Don't spend your energy covering up your past sins and hope no one will notice. You need to repent. Then, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So our good works are not to be hidden. They're to be done without hypocrisy. But there's a reason that Christians have to shine. Others need to see the good works because they display the work of the kingdom. We learned this when we studied Ephesians. If you missed it, check out the sermon series on the website. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What do those good works look like? Ephesians chapter 4 gave us examples. Put away falsehood and speak truth with with your neighbor. Don't give any opportunity for anger to become sin. Don't steal, but instead do honest work so that you can be generous with others. Stop any corrupting talk and use your words to give grace and build one another up. Rid your life of bitterness and slander and be kind and tender-hearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. These are just a few examples. Our Bibles are full of them and the list goes on and on. So these good works do need to be seen by others. But to what end? Our transformation is not about bringing glory to ourselves. Christians are about the business of bringing glory to their Father in Heaven, point C. 
doing good works, is satisfying for the Christian. Our motivation is to bring glory to God. This is foundational to the change that has taken place in us by the hand of God. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for God. We no longer work for ourselves, we work for God. We no longer seek glory for ourselves, we seek to bring glory to God. So who are you as a Christian? What is your identity? I mean, deep within you. How do you find your satisfaction? Can you make this statement along with the Apostle Paul and mean it? Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. At this point, I want to quote John Piper because he said this so clearly, and and he's been so clear on this, this particular point. In his 1986 book, Desiring God, he summarized his philosophy of the Christian life with this memorable statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So, let's find our satisfaction in God and be what Jesus has called us to be. Let's be salt to the earth and light to the world. Jesus chose these descriptions very carefully for us. So let's live them out carefully. We live in a world that needs the wisdom of God applied to the issues of life. So let's be useful in applying that wisdom We live in a world that needs to understand that God's kingdom has broken in upon this world. So let's be visible as we illuminate that truth. And let's do the work of God in a worthy manner so that he may be glorified. Please pray with me. Father, We read in your word how we're salt and light. And so help us to function as salt and light to a fallen world. And help us to be useful. Help us to apply your wisdom. Help us to avoid corruption. Help us to provide an effective witness. Make us visible to proclaim. Help us to illuminate the truth of scripture. Lord, don't hide us and cover us, but uh, expose us to those things we need to be exposed to so that our lights may shine and that we may do what glorifies you and find our satisfaction in you as we obey Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.